This is the Like-Minded Investors Real Estate Podcast, episode number four. That podcast episode was so good. I cannot wait for people to listen to it. Like I did, I didn't even ask all my questions. Like I had questions either. about her. me either. Because like I had questions about her pod. I wanted yep. to like prop it up a little bit, you know. But like I looked at the clock on my laptop and I was like, she's getting tired. And I know yep. she just had a full day and like we're gonna have her on again. And like, I mean, she's just incredible well guys let's let's prop it up now because she has the good bones podcast which is absolutely incredible if you guys want to go and listen to that um even before you go and listen to this episode that we're about to show you um she just has so much great content and i feel like she is like she's down to earth she like tells it how how it is and um yeah, I'm just, I'm super excited for this episode. And then also, like, like I said, if the listeners want to go and check out the Good Bones podcast that she has out, like, let go do it. <laughs> yeah, Good Bones podcast yeah. uh, with Bonnie. You can also yep. check out Landlord Law School um, or follow her on Instagram. We'll try to link everything in the show notes the best we can. Yeah. Um, Bonnie is awesome. If you have any questions, DM her. She is amazing. She you know, we'll get back to everybody. Um, and I think it's a good lesson uh, for everybody uh, who wants to listen and learn a few things about both investing and the the legal side. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons out there that I think goes maybe understated a little bit is to high, when you're building out your team, you need a lawyer, you need an accountant, you need a contractor, you need a real estate agent, an insurance broker, and you know so many other things but um one of the things that people i don't think say a lot is to the best of your ability get people that either invest themselves or work very well with investors um having a lawyer that is a real estate lawyer that doesn't own real estate maybe isn't the best choice and having an agent who doesn't invest in real estate if you want to invest in real estate maybe not the best choice because maybe they're not taking you to, to the properties that would make the most sense for an investor maybe they don't have the network of people that are that have off-market deals for you and i think that you know bonnie being both a very successful investor with over 120 units as well as a super successful lawyer and as she she described herself a real estate entrepreneur um i think just speaks volumes to not only her practice and, and her uh, career in this this space but you know out of the other 48 states there has to be monies out there that are um, equally as credible and awesome um, and I think as investors it's our job to, to search them out exactly so basically after you listen to Bonnie's episode if you can't find somebody that's uh you know she's she's licensed in Pennsylvania and I think New Jersey so yes. if you can't find someone in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, like you need to find your own Bonnie in your own state. So, um, yeah, we really hope that you enjoy this episode. All right. Thank you, Bonnie, for joining us. We are so excited to have you here. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Yes. I, uh, oh my gosh. I like, I've been looking forward to this so much. I'm sure, sure Bill has too. Right, Bill? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess to get started, we kind of like, you know, ask every guest just to give us a little bit of a recap of who you are, kind of how you got started in real estate, where you are, um, as far as, you know, everything you're doing, Bonnie, you are doing amazing things. So just like, tell us <laughs> <laughs> kind of who you are and where you're at with real estate. Sure. So I'm Bonnie Gallum. I consider myself a real estate investor first, a real estate attorney second, and a real estate, I'll say, entrepreneur in, in many ways. I got started in real estate investing when I met my now husband back in law school. I went to law school thinking I was going to be a criminal prosecutor, actually was a criminal prosecutor for several years. Um, and he was a real estate investor on the side. And what was on the side eventually became full-time for him. And I've always loved real estate. Like I was the kid who would take her Borders gift card and like go buy house plans with it. Like that's, that was me as a child. Um, and I just, I 
saw what he was doing and it was a mixed bag. It was like, one, I'm obsessed because it's real estate, but B, I'm a lawyer and I'm a nervous Nelly. And I'm like, what the actual F are you doing? Like, we're going to lose everything. Like I was that naysayer girlfriend in the room who's just like, can't we put this in a Roth or something? Um, and eventually, you know, I got on board. I was like, oh, this is actually the best thing ever. And um, that led to me opening my law firm a, a few years after I graduated from law school because I just didn't like the way I was working with other lawyers. I was kind of doing things behind the scenes My for a, f- a few years. I couldn't really do it on the books as a, a government employee, but I was learning it. And I was loving it. And I was like, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do it better than these old farts and I'm going to do it my way. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been an adventure, a learning experience. I learned so much from my clients every day. Um, and I, yeah, that's where I'm at. That's me. I'm Bonnie. I, I invest also by Burr method, uh, largely in student housing in Philadelphia. I'm located just in the Jersey Burbs outside of Philly and we self-manage them. And I know that's where a lot of these, that's probably where a lot of the conversation is going to go next. So how many units then do you own now? Um, because if you, so I know you, you said you burr, but yeah. like how many units do you own now? And like, what percentage of them have you burred? We're at probably 120 ish oh and we've burred basically all of them. Um, we have been, I guess, very fortunate to have started in real estate investing in Philly during a time of huge amount of appreciation. And so we've been able to kind of really benefit from that. Um, Anyone who knows the Philly market, it kind of was somewhere that like no one wanted to touch 20 years ago to this place that's like New York City South. And I say that with like disdain in my mouth, like we, I am Philly pride, like we are not New York City South, but it's become basically a commuter city to New York in many ways. And it's just exploded. And we've been very fortunate to kind of had just reaped the benefit of investing at the right place at the right time. some of it we have purchased, um, I guess not entirely, I guess the Burr method, but we do try to buy um, uh, distressed assets. Sometimes we'll buy them with you know, just a regular commercial loan, um, fix it up either with cash or with you know, some sort of um, construction product. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, Gosh, 120 units. So um, Bill was kind of filling me in a little bit on your strategy. So he was saying that some of that is student housing or is all of it student student housing? It's probably like 80% student housing. We've got like two commercial buildings. We've got um, a few rentals that I guess they could be student housing. They're just not um, largely just due to location. But I'd say probably 80% of that is student housing. And that's kind of our sweet spot. We, we have properties kind of near Drexel and Temple, if you're familiar with uh, the Philadelphia area. And it's been kind of a sweet spot, but it's also been really helpful from like a self-management standpoint in that we kind of just have this little niche and the type of problems that arise in those types of units and the types of rehab we do in those types of units and the even just the turnover expectations are is something very predictable that we've found and we like it (laughs) i actually had questions about all of that believe it or not so um i've also went to school in philly so familiar with the area um know that there's the city six all that fun stuff high amount of college students in the area um you know, I know what I was like in college and what I did to properties and, you know, getting into real estate. I certainly hope that college students wouldn't do that to properties that I may own in the future. How do you kind of navigate the, uh, I guess, the party scene, the turnover year to year or every couple of years? Um, I, I know like factoring it in numbers and all that stuff, but like, I guess my question is, how do you kind of predict it the best you can? So some of it is just knowing like the nature of the beast is what it is. When it comes to turnover, we anticipate that every unit will turn over every year. And then we're pleasantly surprised when they don't. Um, The, and then budgeting for that turnover and managing it in terms of like making sure we've got cleaners 
ready to go and contractors ready to go to literally clean up the disaster that the, uh, some of these apartments turn into. Many of them, I will say most of the time, it's not as bad as you would think. Like we, we, we don't really have anything big enough to be like a frat house. Um, I think our biggest unit is like a three bedroom. And so that is big enough to do some damage, but not big enough to like throw a, a, a true banger. Um, the but then a lot of it comes down to like when we do the rehab like what are we putting in those units it's like something that can be destroyed <laughs> either it's cheap enough that we don't care or it's durable enough to withstand it um a lot of our properties are very old if you're um parts of it are actually under like historic preservation they were built in like the turn of the century of the 1800s and so they actually have you know great wood floors that you know are actually pretty durable short of you you know spilling like PBR on it all day or something. Um, the but we've put down you know LVP. We're doing granite. We're not doing laminate. We do the cheapest you know cabinets and we get as far out of them as we can. Um, and the the good thing I think also with student rentals is that the expectation of the tenants are pretty low. They're looking for something clean. They're looking for something convenient. They're looking for you know maybe a washer and dryer something like that. But they're not looking for like the Ritz Carlton of features. Um, and so that kind of helps balance out the, I think what some people could see as a detriment of like the high turnover, the, the heavy wear and tear that students can put on properties. Oh, that's phenomenal. And my 20 year, 21 year old self feels personally attacked by that PPR comment, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, just getting into more detail, I guess. So, you know, speaking of how, of convenience and students just wanting to have a place to live near campus, all that stuff. Um, how do you kind of structure the rent? Is it like rent by room or do you do like one contract, everybody signs, co-signers, parents, all that kind of fun stuff? We do the one signed lease. Um, everybody's got co-signers on there. Um, and everyone's kind of jointly and severally held viable for the lease. So if one person leaves, the, the rest of the group is on the hook for the lease um, unless they find someone else. And we're, we're usually pretty flexible because it's, it's often not too hard. Roommates are often swapping out. And so even if we have someone who um, is staying on the lease, say in a two or three bedroom, it's not unusual for one or two of the bedrooms to turn over even if one tenant is staying. Um, and I know there's other student rental landlords who who have found a lot of success doing it by the room. Um, I think largely the fact that most of our units are like studio one or two bedroom units, it, it doesn't really lend to that. It, it's just too small of a space and they're they're not too difficult to rent for that reason either. Usually you can find like two or three people who want to live together. When you're you know talking a four or five, six bedroom, there's definitely those properties around the universities. Um, I can see there that being a better fit. So I, um, have a question about that. So, you know, I've heard a lot of, I don't know if I want to say companies, but you know, when I was in college, it was kind of like, sometimes they would designate like one student to be like the manager of kind of all of that, um, with your contracts, is it kind of just like, you know, they're like, I know you just said that they were each responsible for it, no matter what. So if one student, student doesn't pay, does that mean that the other students are responsible for that actual other students, like non-payment? Is that kind of how it works with your contracts? In theory, yeah. In theory, that would be how it works. Thankfully, we haven't run into that issue too often. I think the fact that there's co-signers and, uh, frankly, student loans kind of helping a lot of people pay for their, their student housing helps. We, we don't have a big, you know, delinquency issue. Um, but I think that the, um, where was I going with this? The, uh, in terms of non-payment of rent with students, you can just really kind of vet them on the front end. But we've also found that we're pretty, pretty flexible. If someone's like, hey, I can't pay or hey, I'm dropping out of school or I'm transferring or this or that. We really try to be flexible in terms of getting like a good sublet in there. Um, we don't really try to hold people to the gun and say like, you're forced to be in here. It's just like, hey, let's work with each other as soon as possible. And that's really just been our approach to business across the board, not just with the student rentals. It's like, let's just all work with each other. Because as soon as someone comes in and is like, oh, I'm holding you to this and this and that, yeah, we let them know that, but the approach is, so let me, you know, let's work together to, to solve this issue rather than let's, you know, end up in court with each other. I love that. I think that's so profound. I mean, just everybody wants to avoid 
courtroom. So <laughs> I think it's good to be able to try to work things out before it gets to that. Yeah. And I have found, I mean, we've evicted maybe like two people in the last 10 years. Like it's not something we wow. try to do a lot. Um, it's really when a tenant kind of puts us in the position where they're like, I'm not going to leave until like a sheriff's at my door. Um, we, we really try to give people, you know, like you've got to the end of the month to leave the month is on us, but you got to go like just that one month is often cheaper than the holding cost and the waiting cost of dealing with the sheriffs and the attorneys and all of that. And so personally, we found that just avoiding that whole process is frankly in everyone's best interest. I mean, people housing is like sacred. Um, I think for students, maybe a little bit less so because they probably have mom and dad to go back to, but not always. Um, but when you think about, you know, someone's housing and like the, the decision to evict them, I mean, it's something that is like a stain on their record forever. Every other landlord forever and ever is going to see that there. And so if they're just, you know, a period of hardship rather than, you know, bring them down and bring me down and all of that, like, how can we just like part ways amicably and give you the space to sort it out? I love that. I, yeah. So how do you then like, um, I guess when I was in college, it's like, kind of like, I wish that I could find, uh, in a, a space like yours, like, how do you actually find those student rentals? I guess, like, how do you get them into your units and, and always have them? Like, do, do you find that it's easy to fill your vacancies? It's usually pretty easy. I'd say the bigger the unit, the more difficult it is to rent. And I think just that's just the nature of student rentals. It's just more people having to agree on it since we don't do rent by the room. Um, but we do, I think, the same thing that a lot of regular landlords do. We, you know, push it to like apartments.com, Zillow, which is, you know, obviously shifting with the way that they allow promotion of rental units. Um, we don't do Facebook or Craigslist, I don't think. But we just get it on like the, the apartment websites and um, we used to have signage. I think we may have some signs on some old buildings. Those don't seem to bring in the best tenants um, or the most qualified tenants. The Because there's a lot of foot traffic in the area, but we also get a lot of referrals where, you know, a tenant may be graduating or leaving and they're just like, hey, my friend wants to lease here. Or you kind of have that revolving door where like one person's leaving, the other one's staying and they, they kind of just wash, rinse and repeat. Referrals have been um, very nice. I can't say that we have like one of those houses. I don't know if it was this way when you guys went to college. I was in Greek life and there was always like that like off-campus house where it was like perpetually being passed down through like a fraternity or a sorority. Like we're not that blessed in life to have that. But maybe it's a good thing because that house will probably take a beating. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, people always have friends who are a little bit younger than them. And so there's always a handful each year that we can get kind of lined up very easily. Oh, just saying, let them go and get the turnover. Well, guess who gets a month's rent when you do the turnover? And so I just, I like having that really tight control over our portfolio. Yeah. 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 I think that's awesome. Now circling back to how do you market the properties, I guess? Um, you had mentioned doing it online, word of mouth, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was wondering if you actually had any kind of relationship with the university where you could go and say like, hey, could you guys post it on your website? Like, do those universities have a portal where students can go and look for properties? I know where I went to school, there was something like that. And some landlords were able to kind of post their listings there specific to the university. Yeah, I know Drexel does. We don't participate in that. I think largely just because we haven't felt the need for it. Frankly, I don't know if Drexel takes a cut or like what the fee is to post. I remember back when I, because I actually went to Drexel. It's funny when I met my husband, he's like, oh, I'm a landlord near Drexel. I was like, oh crap, are you my landlord? Um, but he's not. <laughs> so that was good. <laughs> Kept the relationship going. Um, but it was a lot of like those like more institutional landlords where it was like campus apartments or um, I forget the other big one that was around Drexel's campus. But it, it wasn't ever really like the small guys. I remember I found all my apartments on Craigslist, which I don't know. Is that considered sketchy now? I don't know. I've heard people have good experiences with Craigslist when it comes to hiring like contractors and subs. I don't know so much about housing, but <laughs> I mean. Well, maybe I'm dating myself then. I literally just out of my desk before you arrived, pulled out a sleeve of like CD-ROMs that I could burn music onto in my desk. I'm at my parents' house before I move into my flip. So dating myself too. <laughs> the, 
blame you. I just, my parents just sold their house and I had a Hello Kitty, Hello Kitty, like binder of CDs that were like mixtapes that are called like throwback jams with like seven Z's. So I, I, I can't judge. Did you, did you listen to any of them? Were there any? <laughs> what were they going to listen to? Where do I have a CD player to like listen to this stuff? Uh, but don't worry, I've got a throwback jams playlist on Spotify. Okay. There you well, go. The house I'm purchasing, the one closet in one of the bedrooms literally was filled to the ceiling full of VCRs, like old like DVDs, CD players, everything. So if they leave them behind because they're basically useless, you can have one. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Just what I was missing. <laughs> So Bonnie, I guess one of uh, another question that I have, and I'm sure like a lot of the listeners are going to want to know, um, you like, let's talk about your practice. Like you, you own, is it correct that you own your own practice now? Yeah, I do. So I created my practice about two, just over two and a half years ago at this point, we're going on three years. Um, and I did that because like I said, I didn't like the dynamic that we had with our other uh, the lawyers who we were working with. Um, it was obviously an expense. And so I was like, if we can bring this in house, it made a lot of sense. Um, and I really just kind of came at it from this approach of I'm an investor first and I'm an attorney second. And so I kind of had this mindset of like, for every legal solution, there's also a, a business decision that has to be made. And so I, I found, and I really struggled with working with a lot of lawyers who were like, this is the law, this is what you have to do. And like, yeah, there are laws and things you have to do. Don't get me wrong. But like when it comes to, you know, decisions around, you know, tenants or asset protection or whatever, like it just never really jived with me with the, what they were selling essentially like that's what lawyers do we sell services and what they were selling just it never sat well with me and so I was like I'm just gonna sell you know do it my way and and see how it resonates with people and it's been going really well I I love what I do um it in many ways it's kind of spun off to like the creation of landlord law school and it's spun off to you know this really fun podcast and meeting people like you guys on podcasts and um connecting with other local investors and learning about, you know, just totally different exit strategies that I'm like, people do that. And, you know, some of them I'm like, I won't touch with a 10 foot pole at my law firm. And some of them, I, you know, I love being a part of it now, like some of the creative finance stuff that investors do. And so it's been, um, it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. I, so I guess like one of my other questions then too, is like, um, I feel like there is this thing about LLCs. Like, what is your take? <laughs> what is your take on LLCs? Like, I feel like people are like, oh, you need an LLC to, you know, for asset protection. And I don't feel like, I, you know, it doesn't matter. Kind of like, you know, as a lawyer who has your own firm, kind of what is your take on LLCs and purchasing properties under them? Sure. So my non-legal advice opinion yes. <laughs> is that LLCs are great. If you and your investing strategy can basically afford to invest through an LLC, then I think you should do it. Um, I realize people who are house hacking, um, for example, like their financing wouldn't work in the event of, um, especially if they're doing like of an FHA kind of conventional owner occupant mortgage, having the property owned by an LLC doesn't work. Granted, you can buy as an LLC and live in there, but you don't get a lot of like the tax benefits and things like that, that you would um, as an owner occupant. The, um, but I think LLCs are also kind of like presented as this, you know, bulletproof iron shield thing. And I'm like, they're, they're there to mitigate loss. That, that's really what it is. It's to contain a loss, whether it's someone from the outside, like in your personal life, trying to come after it or something that happens based off the business activity in the LLC. It's just, it's contained. Think of it as like a little bubble and things are over there. Granted, you have to use the LLC properly. And that's a, a big problem I see with um, not just investors, but just businesses across the board is if you don't run your business like a business, then you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have the asset protection that comes with it if you're not acting like the business you need to be. And so a lot of people don't do that. And then the, the LLC can often be useless. 
The other thing to think about at LLC is like I mentioned is that it's there to mitigate loss. It doesn't do anything to stop you from being sued in the first place. No lawyer has ever like saw an LLC and is like, man, it's not worth the effort. That's an LLC. Like that, that's not the reality. And, um, you know, doing things like equity stripping and doing all these convoluted LLCs and trusts and all of that stuff. Like, is there maybe an incremental amount of asset protection through that? Yeah. Is there also an astronomical amount of legal fees and accounting fees and things like that? Yeah. I mean, just today on, on, it's on Instagram and, and it's the middle of July. I'm not sure when this is going to go live, but like I literally posted, I was like, do you need asset protection from your asset protection? Because it can just get insane. Um, and a lot of people, they, they get into this overkill or worse, they get this fear, like this paralysis where they're like, I can't start investing until I figure all of this out. And it doesn't have to be that difficult and it doesn't have to be that expensive. And what I often, and my approach is when I, when I talk with investors about it, is what do other businesses do? Not like real estate and businesses. Like what does the pizza shop do? What does Amazon do? What does, you know, every other business who you interact with your, in your life do? Well, I can tell you what they don't do. They don't like form a Wyoming LLC and then put it in a land trust and then structure it in type of an LLC. Like that's just not what they do. They create a business entity to separate it out and separate those activities and they get the right insurances in place, but then they also get the right documents in place and they run a tight ship in terms of their systems and processes. They get good contracts out for the people who they work with. And then they've, you know, they cross their fingers. There's always going to be some amount of risk. And if you're going into real estate investing, hoping to just, you know, stick your head in the sand and pretend that nothing ever happens, then that that's not the reality. That's not just not how this industry works. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that goes for all businesses. I think if you want to be, you know, the the person at the top, the owner, the entrepreneur, there are always going to be risks in terms of somebody trying to come after you. Whether that comes to fruition or not is, you know, right. I mean, it's America. But... You can sue anybody for anything. And so, what you want, and what I, you know, encourage my clients to have, and the reason why I created Landlord Law School is because I want you to have the evidence. I want you to win on your actions. And so nothing, nothing, no LLC um, will shut something down faster than someone's signature on the dotted line saying otherwise. And so if we can have that and have like a robust arsenal of things to protect you and making sure you've got the right insurances in place, I can't like stress that enough from an asset protection standpoint is that you, a lot of investors like, great, I've got a homeowner's policy and now I've got insurance in place. Like you may need multiple levels of insurance. You may need a general liability policy. You may need an umbrella policy. You may need all sorts of things, depending on the type of investing that you're doing. And I mean, I'm talking about this as a burr investor, but there's different insurances that like a wholesaler should have in place or a flipper should have in place. Like you need to make sure you've got that stuff in place. Cause that's really what an attorney who's going to sue you is going to look for. What's the policy payout and how do I get the max? That's what they're looking for. Wow. Oh my gosh. Like I didn't even have this as a question, but like, I didn't even realize I, it never even came to mind that you need different policies for different things. You know, my husband and I, we, we've house hacked, we've bird, we flipped. I have never thought about the fact that you need to have like these different things in place for the different types of real estate investing that you're doing. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Go call your insurance broker. <laughs> Me neither. And after this, I might have a question or two. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but in terms of full disclosure, I guess for the podcast, I probably should be transparent. I am purchasing a flip and I have homeowner's insurance and was considering getting like a blanket um, umbrella policy to kind of start my investing and scaling from there in terms of just generally starting. Yeah. I mean, I love umbrella policies. I think everyone should have one. I think they are some of the best bang for your asset protection buck you can get out there. I mean, for a few hundred bucks a year to get like a million dollars put on top of you. That's just great. I mean, I think it's one of those like adulting things that people don't like talk about. It's like, you need to do your eye cream. You need to get your umbrella policy. And so um, it's just one of those things, like as we grow up, like whether you're a real estate investor or not, but especially if you're a real estate investor, like your net worth is going to increase. And so your um, exposure to loss there also increases, like what you stand to lose increases as you have more things. And so um, I, I love umbrella policies. 
maybe I'm better off than I thought then. (laughs) (laughs) But I I totally agree. I think they're great. And I think, you know, real estate or not, as you grow and you hopefully invest wisely and your assets grow, whether it be real estate or stocks or bonds or or crypto or whatever your heart desires, at some point you're going to accumulate enough assets where maybe somebody will come after you and protecting yourself is always yeah. The only caveat I give people with umbrella policies is that there's exceptions. You know how that's insurance's favorite thing to do is to like write you a policy and then find a reason why they don't have to provide coverage under it. Um, and so a big one that often comes up with personal umbrella policies is business activities. And so if you're flipping and you have your personal umbrella policy and something goes wrong, that umbrella policy may not kick in if it needed to. You may want to have a separate business type uh, policy in place. And so that's why it's really like getting in touch with your uh, insurance broker, laying it out, like, this is everything I'm doing. Um, and so what do I need to do? Like, and these are my insurances. What what do I need in place? Is this sufficient? Should I be bumping this up? Do I need a different type of coverage for the other activities is muy importante. So I guess it's kind <laughs> I'm of- I'm like past my bedtime, guys. We're just going off the rails. I know. Uh, Bonnie, believe me, I was telling Bill earlier, I'm like, he might need to carry the podcast tonight because this is past my bedtime. <laughs> me and you, girl. Yeah. Um. So one of my things too, I guess, is, I mean, I don't like, you know, I know that you cannot like answer like a hundred percent like legal things on this podcast, but um, (laughs) so, you know, I guess what would you, what would your best advice be for somebody who is, you know, cause my husband and I, we are doing flips. We're doing a live in burr. We also have another property that we're just, it's a complete investment burr. Like, do you suggest getting for the, the type of types of people that are doing like all these different things, like different LLCs or just doing the umbrella policy, like kind of like what, what's your take on people that are doing a bunch of different investment strategies? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's cleanest if you can, you know, isolate them out into different LLCs, if applicable, like a live in birth, for example, depending on how you acquired that, like that may be something you never uh, put into an LLC. I'm not sure what your end game of that property is, but the, the other things, like if you're a wholesaler and you own rental properties, for example, would you ever want a wholesale sale deal gone south to screw up or touch a rental property? Heck no. Separate those two from each other. You want to be contracting under the one when you're doing the one thing and the other when you do the other thing. Because wholesalers, for example, they don't have they never really take possession of an asset. They, they don't have a lot to, to lose, especially if they're you know very quickly passing the money through. Um, and same thing with flipping. Flipping is also a different you know type of tax. Uh, when you flip a property versus when you have rental income. And so a flip property flips are sometimes the LLCs that people actually do make an S-corp election for because it's tax beneficial. Whereas doing that on a rental property may not make sense. Another big thing that people talk about is, you know, for example, self-managing or property managers. If you're going to do that, then some people will create their own LLC and kind of filter everything through the property management LLC down to the other ones. Um, the, the big thing you also have to think about is who am I doing this for? Because I realize that as real estate investors, as you start kind of putting yourself out there and growing, people are always calling in and asking favors. Can you help me with, you know, this renovation? Can you show this property for me or whatever? And once you start doing things for people beyond yourself, you're now kind of exposing yourself to a new risk pool. And I think that's also a good time to start thinking about carving things off. Cause a lot of times people will be flippers and then they'll say, Oh, a friend wants me to now contract something in his house. And like, maybe you have your GC license. Cause I know a lot of flippers do to pull their own permits and whatnot, but now you're doing it for someone else. And you may say like, you know what? I don't want to mix those two together. Uh, and so thinking about when you're, when you're stepping beyond yourself, same thing with us, for example, like my husband does our own property management, but we also property manage for a few close friends of ours. And, um, for that, like we have a separate company, like it's just not worth, uh, the risk of meddling on anything else. Yeah, that makes so much sense. 
I love that answer, especially because also my husband's a contractor. So it's like, you know, we have a separate LLC for that. So it's like, (laughs) I feel like we're kind of on the right track. And I know I've talked to you before about, um, separating out a couple of the other things. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm using this as like my own, not therapy session, but (laughs) I just love chatting with you. Um, what are the, what, uh, what other questions do you have for, for Bonnie? Yeah, I actually had one. So one of my favorite things about you, Bonnie, is your Instagram stories. I yes. love like there are very few people that I religiously watch like and, you know, wait for it to kind of like, you know, go through it all with the awkward like pause and everything. I am flattered. Agreed. <laughs> I, mean, I am totally on board with this. Go ahead. Bill. Yeah, so for any listener who doesn't follow Bonnie, please do, because it's it's, in my opinion, worth its weight in gold. That being said, you have your own legal practice, and obviously we want to be able to promote you, your legal practice, and everything that you do that's amazing. And in some form or fashion, I feel like you have probably figured out the balance between like dangling the metaphorical carrot on Instagram and leaving something to for people to you know, call you and hire you and things like that. So my question was like, how did you figure that out? Is there some sort of metaphorical carrot and things like that? <laughs> Honestly, I, I, it really kind of started when I would just see things that bothered me and I just be like, I don't want anyone else to go through this. Um, and it, it hasn't been with any real intention to, you know, get clients. I, I think it's, I always just thought it was better content. And if people enjoyed it, then that that's for the better for me. I, I do get quite a few clients every month through Instagram, which is, um, both a pleasure and a surprise in many ways. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, what I try to focus on is just kind of like little lessons. Like I think I'll, you know, have something go wrong in a contract for a client or um, someone will call me with a particular question like a few times in a week. And I'm like, you know what? I I think it's worth kind of diving deep into like what this means. Um, Or, you know, the moratorium, like I had some thoughts (laughs) on that. And so it's, I I can't say there's been a lot of intention behind it and for better, for worse. (laughs) Um, But it's, I I just see it as like an easy way for me to provide some value, some education without, you know, people having to call the lawyer and be like, Hey, what's this thing? And so if you follow along with me for, you know, weeks or months or whatever, you'll probably get a lot of things where you're like, Oh, I'm going to put that like in my back pocket and and know I have that information for later. Um, Yeah. So that, that's my jam. I love Instagram. I love hanging out there. I, I, people are always surprised when like I respond back to a DM. They're like, Oh my God, thank you. But I'm like, who do you think? Like, I, I clearly don't have anyone managing like my social media. That is just me and my either boredom or, you know, rage. It, those are usually the two things that will bring me to Instagram. <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, like I said, those are must watch usually. And I, I agree weeks, months, whatever. I definitely know that I have learned a lot from them. I'll put it like that. Well, thanks for saying that. I'm I'm glad they don't just go off into like internet no man's land. No. And I I know when we first formally met in person that you said, you know where to find me, DM me on Instagram if you have any legal (laughs) questions. So it's, and here we are on a podcast, which is, I guess, a little different. I know. It's a lot of fun. And and I think people are like, like questioning that because I'm like, my email inbox is like managed by my paralegal. Like she triages that before I even see anything. So if you want to like quickly get in front of me, like I'm always peeking at the gram. I, I'm addicted. I love Instagram. I learn. I, cause I'm, I'm such an avid learner myself that like, I have like those people that I follow and I'm like, what are, you know, what can I like take from you and what can I learn from you or how can I be inspired by you? And so, um, I'm, I'm there a lot. <laughs> I, I am as well. Oh, go ahead, Kier. Um, so I guess just kind of like playing off that, like, what have you seen have been like some of the most common questions that you get from Instagram? So I get a ton of the LLC questions. Um, that's probably like number one is like, what are like, what is going on with these LLCs? Um, the other thing I probably get the most is like, how would you handle this tenant situation? And I'm only licensed in two states. And so I, I kind of say like, this is how I've dealt with things in the past, but like eviction rules, for example, are very different uh, across the country. this is something that is governed by state. There's no kind of real overarching federal law that I can be like, hey, go look at this. Um, 
but a lot of people will will talk to me about that or they just like they laugh or they'll agree to like some of my rants that I've done about things that I've got very strong opinions on like land trusts I've got a lot of strong opinions on other asset protection lawyers um and I I would say that you know a lot of people are just kind of like sometimes they just want to pick my brain on things which is fine I just have to be careful that it doesn't like delve into you know attorney-client relationships. And um, I'm, pr- I'm pretty good at saying like, look, I-, I think this is something that we need to formally sit down and talk about, or you should talk to a lawyer in your state or your CPA or whatever the case may be. Is I- I'm very conscious of that because one of the things I really do dislike about social media is that I think there's a lot of people giving unsolicited and uneducated legal advice, tax advice, investment advice without really any qualification. And I think it's really, really dangerous. Um, Even, I mean, I sell legal templates through my program, um, but there's a lot of people who sell other legal templates and they've landed on my desk and they're a hot mess. And so just, you know, having that, you know, the quickest and cheapest and fastest way is not always the the smart or the best way to do things, uh, whether it's with legal stuff or really anything in real estate. Um, and so it's worth having that just that sense of skepticism about um, the content that you're consuming and you know what those per- people's qualifications are because there's a lot of like internet gurus out there who you know will promise you the moon but really have nothing to back that up. So I have a question. So you brought up attorney client privilege and i guess spoilers for anybody who hasn't watched the show you can click the 15 or 30 second button down below a couple times but breaking bad have you seen it bonnie yes okay saul goodman says put a dollar in my pocket and i'll be your lawyer is that legally like factual um I mean, I guess if someone just says like you're hired in theory, yeah, my malpractice insurance needs a lot more than that. My malpractice insurance <laughs> wants to have, you know, a written retainer agreement in place. And personally, I require a lot more than a dollar to get started with me. But um, yeah, I, I think probably like in a court of law, like if, cause I've had even like my dad, my parents recently sold their house and like midway through the conversation, granted, he like actually like was my client at that point. He's like, we're switching from like, Bonnie and dad to Bonnie and client and what I have to tell you is privileged. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it can be as simple as like, I think the dollar was there because it's, it's a sign of like contractual consideration, mm-hmm. but realistically, like if you DM me and are like, here's a dollar, I'm going to Venmo it to you. That, that doesn't count. You know, that like malpractice gods, I do not count that. <laughs> yeah. So, so for anybody out there, don't DM Bonnie, don't Venmo her a dollar. It needs to be way more. Yes. <laughs> and- <laughs> and maybe a DocuSign or something along with yes, it. Yes, there's definitely a DocuSign uh, <laughs> that comes in. My malpractice requires that. And I think that's much to like the chagrin that call, uh, so many people call them. Like, I just got one quick legal question. I'm like, I really get that. Um, but like lawyers are paid for their brains. Like I don't have like a thing to like sell you. Like I don't have like a toothbrush that it's like here where you have an exchange or like um, a hairdresser who's like actively performing a service. Like when you hire a lawyer, kind of like with a CPA and stuff, like you're hiring someone for their brain and their knowledge. Um, and so it's, it's a bit amorphous and I feel funny about it. Like I'm the worst salesperson in the world. And I think people like that, that they're just like, I'm just so bad at it that they're like, I trust you. Um, but it's, um, yeah, but a dollar is important. Cause even when you think about a dollar, uh, think about like a dollar deed, for example, if people are deeding something to an LLC is a perfect example for a dollar. The reason you can't do it for zero, because in theory, like no one's really passing a dollar from themselves to like this LLC is to show that there's consideration, that there's some item of value that is being exchanged that kind of binds the contract and puts it in place, whether it's an oral contract or a written contract. And yes, in theory, I think an attorney-client agreement can be found and created through an oral agreement and that quick exchange of consideration of a dollar. (laughs) There's your lawyer lesson of the day. That was worth this waiting gold to me. Thank you. I've been waiting way too long for that answer. And well, I'm happy I mean, to have provided it. I wasn't going to hire a lawyer to ask it. Oh God, no! I don't so, even like lawyers that much. <laughs> so, I do have another question. So, I think it came up a couple times and about evictions and the moratorium and things like that. And I know we've been through um, unprecedented times, to say the least, the last eighteen months or so. 
Um, and being that you're a lawyer and probably have a lot of situations that have come up over the last 18 months related to evictions, um, I just kind of wanted to get your perspective on it, if you don't mind, without going too political, because just okay. like anything, there's, you know, two sides to every story and, you know. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'll talk about, you know, the perspective that I've seen it, like, even through, like, the lens of my clients. And it's it's been a mixed bag. I think everyone's perception of the moratorium when it first went into effect was like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, like the world is coming to an end. Like, this is not what we need to be focusing on. I think we all also thought like, we saw people two weeks and we'll say like, hey guys, see in two weeks, like we'll go quarantine and this will be it. And, and that very much was not the case. I, I don't think like our politicians knew exactly what this was and how to deal with it. I don't think scientists knew what it was and how to deal with it. And so everyone was kind of just doing their best. I think the problem is, is that what they did from the outset is still what is in place today in many places. Like there has not been an evolution of like, um, kind of releasing the valve, at least here, I'll say in like New Jersey, um, unless it's in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, but in Pennsylvania, for example, you can evict for reasons basically other than non-payment of rent. Whereas in New Jersey, like that, that ship is just like totally closed. So you cannot evict. I, I've heard rumors of people actually evicting people for like other bases, but like no one's willing to like name names or name attorneys or name judges. And so I don't believe it until I hear it. Um, and I I kind of wish that there was a little bit more flexibility. I know in other parts of the country that uh, I think things are back to closer to normal in many ways. There's still the federal moratorium that's in place till, till the end of the month, but that only covered a portion of um, rental properties anyway. I The hardship that I have and I've seen with my a lot of my clients is that they they truly have people who are taking advantage of it or there are situations where it's you know a dangerous or unsafe or unhealthy uh, situation and they really have no remedy I mean they're getting in trouble with the local municipalities there I had a client who got arrested for an illegal lockout like it was getting to be a, a real mess and it, these aren't you know bad actors. They're, they're just, they're trying to figure it out. And it's, it's a mess and there's no real recourse. Uh, another issue I have with it is that it's in many ways, it feels like the entire brunt of the pandemic has fallen on the shoulders of really small landlords. Um, there's, you know, not a bill that you can in theory kind of skip except for your rent right now. And I realize that housing is special. It is not like your credit card bill. It's not even like going to the grocery store. It is where you bathe is where your children fall asleep and it's where you eat it's it's sacred and it should be treated differently but I also don't think it needed to be an all or nothing I think people kind of put this stopgap measure in place last year which made sense but I think we needed to revisit it sooner than we have in many places oh gosh I'm like I got tingles from that response Bonnie like I like I 100% agree Bill what about you yeah I think it's a very delicate situation yeah. I mean you have to look at it from both yeah. ends and there's really no uniform answer you have big institutional owners you have small landlords you have mortgage companies that employ thousands and thousands of people and then you have the the tenants who are, are paying rent and um, the unfortunate truth is that somebody's going to get hurt in that. And the, an the answer is, the question is who? Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I think it should be the big banks. I, I think we Main Street bailed out Wall Street a decade ago, and I think it's the big banks turn. I really wish that there would have been more pressure for banks, especially on the commercial end, to kind of eat it a little bit mm -hmm. during this time. Um and I'm, you know, I'm really curious to kind of see what this like trickle down like legislation that is coming. I know in Philadelphia, they're putting out some legislation that you can't deny housing based off of delinquencies during COVID, whether it's, you know, credit score blips or um, even uh, evictions that didn't result in a, um, a judgment or a, or a sheriff coming out. Uh, there's also some legislation that's, you know, floating around, around your ability to sue for owed rent from the pandemic. And so a lot of landlords are kind of like, they're up a creek without a paddle. They have no remedy now. And they're also kind of being denied any sorts of future remedy. I'd be curious to see obviously how this stuff holds up from a constitutional standpoint. Um, I know in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, there were some kind of like start and stop 
uh, constitutional lawsuits that were brought saying like, this is unconstitutional what you're doing to the landlords. And um, I think everyone kind of thought like we'd be through it by now, like that this would just be not an issue. And it, it just, it still is. And it's still the same laws on the books. So uh, did you have any issues with your, with your student housing when it came to the, to the more moratorium or, or whatever? Very early on in the pandemic, we had a few people reach out to us and say like, hey, like I'm either like losing my job or I'm, you know, the school shut down and I need to move home and my work studies done or like whatever the case may be, I, I can't afford the place anymore. And we kind of made the, the judgment call. We also had someone who was like a, a restaurant server and we knew that and like, she's like, I, until unemployment comes in, like I literally can't work if I want to do. My, my job has been like eliminated from the economy. Um, and we very quickly kind of told them, like, if you want to leave, go ahead. Like our thought was, let's get them out and see if we can get someone new in very quickly rather than like drag this out. And we did that. They were super, you know, one grateful, but two helpful. And like, they would record videos of their apartment and got it up. And, um, well, we got it up, they sent it to us and, you know, worked with us in terms of showings and things like that which was really delicate. I mean, it still is really delicate in many, for many people doing um, showings when you're living there. Um, and we just got new tenants in. And it, it, thankfully it worked out really well. I, I think last year, I mean, just inventory has just been low across the board. And so I think that's been helpful in keeping things occupied. But um, yeah, we, we dealt with it very early on. Uh, I want to say it was like April, May last year, we, we had maybe, maybe five or so units that we, we needed to kind of quickly sort them out. So that's not too bad, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, right? Yeah, no, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I, we pulled a line of credit that we had, like, we just have one that like, we never withdraw from. It's like, in in case of emergency, break the glass (laughs) line of credit. And we remembered um, that back in, I think it was 2008, the banks froze the line of credits, like you could not pull yours. And so when we saw like, the writing on the wall, we very quickly withdrew like the whole line of credit saying like, if we're going to need to float this business for, I don't know how long, like I want the money to do it because the university shut down. We didn't know if they were going to open in the fall. Uh, We thought that, you know, in May, we're like, if this is still going on in September, like we're screwed. (laughs) Looking back, like that's kind of laughable, but the, you know, thank goodness. And I think a lot of people just didn't want to move. So we had very low turnover last year. A lot of people stayed where they, they were and, um, it, it thankfully worked out pretty well. Nice. Nice. Well, Bill, do you have any other questions? I have a couple more, but like I said, I don't want to take over the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fine. Um, I do have one uh, speaking of the low inventory and everything. And I I know we kind of all relatively invest within the same hour to radius, let's call it. Um, Do you have any current or recent projects that you've started or are in the process of Bonnie or, and is it due to the market being so crazy? No, I don't. We don't have anything um, currently in the market. We're thinking about doing a 1031 on some of one of our properties, um, but we haven't acquired anything really. Actually, we required one like small commercial building. That's my office that I'm like office hacking right now. Um, but we really haven't purchased anything in the last year. We, we've put a lot of offers out there. <laughs> we haven't gotten anything. Um, but it, it's also just been kind of like a crazy year. Like I had a baby like in December of 2019. And so like the pandemic was like kind of on the crux of that. And then um, it was just kind of a crazy time for me professionally. I will admit I am the property hunter. My husband is the property manager. And so like when real estate exploded, it was you know very good for my law firm, but it also kind of took me out of the, the day-to-day of being a real estate investor. I miss it though. I'm ready to like kind of swing that pendulum back over that's awesome and i guess follow-up question so there is a stigma and i don't know if it's true or not that lawyers work like a bajillion hours a day like almost 24 <laughs> 7 right and and you own like 120 plus properties you have your own law firm you do landlord law school 
and you have your and everything else how do you um, being a mom like how do you manage all of that um I have a lot of help I I think is part of it um I would not be like I'm Wonder Woman that that's absolutely not the case but I also I think it's two things I have a lot of help my husband is a true team player in every sense of the word um we also have, like, I have staff at my law firm. It's not just on me. I'm probably overstaffed based off of my revenue, but that's what allows me to kind of like balance everything out. Um, I also have very firm boundaries. Like when I'm, it's time for me to leave, like so be it, it's time for me to leave. And sometimes I lose like clients that way. Like if I only have like three or four slots to take a new client each day, and those are full or they're booked with other calls or whatever. And I can't talk to that person till the next day. And if they're not willing to wait, then like, that's fine. I'm not staying till six o'clock to finish all of that. I, I Ooh, kinda just, kinda... I'm sorry. I need to interrupt. I love, love, love that Bonnie. Like that <laughs> is something I need to work on. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> I, no, just, I mean, I'm it's so proud. And it's not something that like happened immediately. It's something that, I mean, that pendulum was off for a good period of time where I was like, I felt like I could work all the time. And I'm sure as, you know, entrepreneurs, which I consider all real estate investors to be entrepreneurs, like there is this pressure that there's always more that you can do. And that's the truth. There is always more that I can do um, in every respect, but there's also always more time. And so I, you know, triage religiously. I, you know, tackle what needs to be tackled immediately. And then the rest of the day gets filled in. I I don't know if you've heard of like the three big blocks where it's like, if you can tackle three things today, do that. And then everything else is kind of bonus. Um, And when you have, you know, a heavy transactional practice where you have like dozens of closings a month that, that there's sometimes more than three big things, but um, they're not always three things that like have to be done by me, for example. And so having like paralegals or an associate to be able to do them is, is key. Uh, so yeah, those are the two things hire too many people (laughs) and, uh, just have those firm boundaries. Like I, people will call me at 8 PM. They will text me. I do not look at my email after 5 PM. I do not look at it before 9 AM. I just don't. I think that's an incredibly healthy habit. I mean, I know in my day job a couple jobs ago I was very much the guy who would log on and reply to emails at 9 p.m and at some point I just realized who am I doing this for they're paying me a salary and as great and as a salary isn't as thankful as I am to have a job and and all of that I mean I have a life too (laughs) yeah yeah and it's it's one of those things where you just kind of have to like realize, I mean, I could sit there and triage emails literally 24 seven. It, it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve my clients. And I think it's just like a false expectation that I, I put on myself for a very long time that I think no one else really expects of me. Um, and I, I've kind of even heard that from clients in many ways where I was like, oh yeah, I could turn this stuff around in like one business day or two business days. And then other attorneys are like, yeah, I'll get that to you in like two weeks. So I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> and I still, I mean, certain things I think in real estate are very time sensitive and the value I can provide to a client is not just delivering the work, but delivering it fast. Um, particularly like off-market deals, getting them under contract. Like I realize that's extraordinarily time sensitive. Um, but other stuff, it's like uh, LLCs is a great example. Does someone want an LLC today? If they've waited five years, they could probably wait five days. <laughs> yeah. So what two, you said you were licensed to, in two states. I'm assuming, is it New Jersey and Pennsylvania? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, Bill and I both invest in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, so kind of what are, I guess, like, what have been like your biggest, oh gosh, I don't know how to word it without being like mean, but like, <laughs> like how, like, have people been like, oh, well this per like this, this, uh, lawyer told me to do this, but I feel like it's completely wrong. Like what have been like some of your most, like, 
uh, biggest problems, I guess, when it comes to other lawyers that told these people to do something and then to come to you and you're like, no, that is absolutely not right. So I don't know that I've ever had that, but I have often had it where I have, you know, a different approach to things. Um, one of the things that I don't like that attorneys do though, is they, they commoditize their services. Uh, there's, there's legal zoom out there that can commoditize a contract. For example, what our value is to clients is to counsel them and inform them and help them make decisions on their own. And I really think that that is my greatest value as an attorney is to say, look, this is what this other attorney is proposing. This is what this means. And this is how it would play out. This is another option. And this is what it means. And this, it would play out like which which sits better with you? Which do you want to, which fits your goals and your values better? Because sometimes things just fit people differently. The one I get all the time is like, well, so-and-so said I should have one property per LLC and that's better asset protection. I'm like, yeah, that's also better asset protection. It's also a great way to bankroll your CPA for like the rest of your life. And so let's just talk about like how this plays out. And, you know, is there a middle ground? Are you comfortable with middle ground? Some people are just nervous Nellies and they're like, no, I, what me, matters the most to me is having one property per LLC. And that's fine. Their risk tolerance is different about mine. It's not my money. It's not my properties. It's not about me and my ego, what I think is right. It's about explaining the differences about all of those different options and letting you choose for yourself. And I think that that's where uh, a lot of lawyers kind of have the wrong approach is that they have an approach. They have like, this is how it should be done when there is no way it has to be done. If there was, then we would write a book and lawyers wouldn't exist. We would just be like, this is how you do it. And so, um, yeah, that's my gripe. (laughs) I think it's great. And I think once you get into maybe a certain net worth, a certain entrepreneurial spirit with business or um, just general comfortability i think certain careers you do pay that money for somebody's brain like you had said earlier i I think lawyers is one i think accountants are another on some level and i think financial advisors are as well on some level i mean those are the three big big ones that i can think of um but I, i know for me personally those like i worked in financial services in the tech side and i learned very early on that to your point no one can predict the stock market. And if there was, there would be a book and it would tell you to invest in XYZ. I know a lot of people, you know, say VTSAX or die or VTI or die. And that's your personal preference, uh, yeah. not financial advice. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I think, you know, everybody is different. Personal finance is different. Personal legal and um, liability and risk is personal. Yeah, it is. And and another, a a great example of this also is leases. People are like, can I have a lease template? I'm like, well, what are you doing with the lease? Because I think other lawyers were like, yeah, here's a lease. Or they, you know, they see that bigger pocket sells a lease or a contract. And they're like, that's it. That is the contract. That is the lease. And I'm like, no, like there's a lot of variation that you can have to these documents that fit your business, fit your properties, fit your expectations and goals. The example I love to give with student rentals is that these drunk mofos get locked out in the middle of the night. And so we have like a, like a penalty for after hours lockouts versus during the day lockouts, because it's something that happens not infrequently. It's hugely inconvenient. Um, and we just kind of know like this is our target market and these are things that are going to screw up. Same thing with like a single family lease versus a multifamily lease. They shouldn't look the same. And if someone's just pooping you out a lease and being like, here you go, it's not, um, it's not doing you the full service it could. Let me just uh, interject here really quickly because so funny we're talking about that, Bonnie. Uh, my husband was just telling me the other day, he's like, all right, on our next single family, we need to put, so uh, we visited our single family property that we have um, on, I think it was like Friday and <laughs> and they are not weeding. They are not doing, like they're mowing, but they're not doing like the um, weed whacking. They're not weed, yeah. they're not, you know what I mean? And so he's like, in our next lease, we need to have it where they have to weed whack. They have to weed, they have to do this, these things. And I'm like, yeah, these, these are all the things that we're learning as we go along. So um, 
yeah he took me there and I'm like oh my god the property looks so bad like I can't believe that she's not weed whacking and that she's not weeding but it's not on her lease you know what I mean like it just says she has to mow like that is it yeah and that's what and that's one of those things where you like you learn better and and you do it and one of the things I I encourage my my students really in landlord law school to do it you know any of my clients at my firm is to do like a periodic audit of that stuff keep a running list of things that went well and more importantly things that did not go well and say at the end of the year or quarterly be like all right how can we fix this and so it doesn't happen again maybe it means you know talking to your insurance broker about something maybe it means updating your lease maybe it means you know reevaluating how your intake process looks for vetting new tenants but at least that way you have this process in place to say all of this stuff is living like there is no such thing as like a done sop or a done lease this is all evolving because your business is evolving you're learning and that's not a bad thing it's just the nature of being an entrepreneur Oh my gosh. Like, I just want to like clap my hands. You are amazing. Like, I'm so glad we had you on. Uh, Bill, do you have any final questions for Bonnie? No, just want to thank Bonnie for coming on and spending the time with us. I think this was super valuable to us, but I I hope equally as valuable to the listeners as well. Yeah. So Bonnie, where can uh, people reach out to you? And let's, you know, real quick, maybe you could talk about a little about uh, your landlord law school. Cause I know we had Lauren and Kyle on, um, on our first episode, I think, and they took your landlord law school and have amazing things to say about it. So if you want to talk real quick about that too, um, that'd be cool. Sure. So if you didn't get it earlier, the best place (laughs) to find me is on Instagram at Bonnie Gallum ESQ. Uh, that is my fave place to hang out or on my podcast, good bones, real estate investing, looking forward to having you guys on there soon. Um, so landlord law school, came into fruition after I started my law firm. And my my motto at the time was be proactive, not reactive. And so I was not, I was previously a litigator. I was no longer taking litigation. I just wanted to do the transactional work, help real estate investors, like literally be proactive, not reactive. And I'm still getting these calls like of things being screwed up and like all these ways that they were losing money, dealing with contractors, dealing with tenants, dealing with their business partners. And I'm like, they're still calling me too late in the game. These investors, like I want to help them, but they're still calling me too late in the game. But I also got the perspective because I was in their shoes as well, that I'm like, I don't want to call a lawyer and have this huge retainer and pay $400 an hour every time I've got this quick call. Like I'm not going to do it. And so if that's the expectation to be proactive and not reactive, then it's, it's a losing battle. Like that is not a game that I would play, let alone any other real estate investor. And so I'm like, how can I teach investors what I know but also then provide them with a resource that they can use over and over again without being billed $400 an hour and give them some of my favorite templates that I've used in my business for clients. So that way they have this arsenal and it's, it's kind of like a business in a box in a way. And it teaches you how to legally create your business, legally run your business, legally grow your investing business and kind of gives you, there's all sorts of like an asset protection audit in there. It, it is like my baby. And I love landlord law school. I think it's, it's like, if you could just create like one course in law school that would teach you about being a real estate investor without having to take the student loan to get it, that's landlord law school. Oh, I love it. I literally, I told you it's going to be like my next investment is going to be landlord law school. So I can't wait um, to have you inside. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Um, so I, cause Lauren, she just like tells me all the good things about it. So, cool. um, well, it was awesome having you on the podcast. I, Bill and I are so happy, happy, happy that you came on tonight. Um, even though what now it's almost 10 PM our time. <laughs> Your editor is going to have some fun with this one. Yeah, right. Who's that? (laughs) Well, thank you. you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Bonnie. We loved having you on and just talking all things real estate. And, um, you know, we'll hopefully have you on again at some point. Yes. I would love that. New new recurring guest, Bonnie. Yeah. (laughs) Monthly non-legal legal legal advice from your favorite lawyer. (laughs) All right. Well, we will uh, talk to you later, Bonnie. Thanks. Sounds good. Talk to you guys soon.
Bye-bye. See ya.